Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Haley Knopf, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hello, Haley. Great to be back. Great to be here, as always. We don't have Amber this week, and I'm a little sad about it because this is... Well, I actually think the reason we don't have her is because she's doing her retreat where she watches all the Oscar movies. Indeed. Finally, we can sh- talk about them with her. Yeah, before the show on on Sunday, and I'm sad because I wanted to... I'm doing a little catch-up of my own on the on the nominated films, and on across Sunday and Monday, it's like a three-hour movie, I watched Elvis. Have you seen Elvis, Haley? Uh, I have, but okay. I, yeah, admittedly, there were some some slow <laughs> moments for me, so I understand well, yeah. why you spread it out. <laughs> a little bit of a chore. Um, the reason I bring it up for our purposes is because Elvis does a thing that a lot of movies do that is frustrating to me as a legal, as a legal news uh, consumer and writer, podcaster, which is that whenever there's it tells like a true story and then all the legal fallout is relegated to the postscript do you remember this this was like oh oh yes. yeah elvis and colonel tom parker like sued each other many times oh in the you know or or, or rather his estate after he died uh you know over a period of several years and then uh you know some were settled and it's 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 the point is it's completely an afterthought but it really made me sad cuz i'm like no let's I need Tom Hanks on the stand or in a deposition room doing the weird Colonel Tom Parker voice. Exactly. We need, this could have been like a Lord of the Rings style trilogy. Good call. You started off with, with this film and then the next one gets into the litigation and then we wrap it up with a with a third because it seems like there's enough litigation for two movies there. Yeah, well, actually, it, it it prompted me to to read a lot of articles about the litigation that happened between Elvis's estate and Colonel Tom Parker, and it was, I mean, I'm I'm joking around. I mean, it would it would not make for a very interesting movie because it's <laughs> like weird corporate wrangling, and then it just kind of ends in a relatively low value settlement when you consider how uh, profitable of an artist he was. Uh, but it was top of mind as I was. I was like, "Oh man, I mean, this is some this is some real chicanery going on from Colonel Tom." <laughs> but in any case, uh, we look forward to having Amber back next week. I'm sure we'll probably th- there will probably be some Oscar post mortem to uh, to handle, uh, and if if there is, we'll certainly get to that. In terms of this week's show, Haley, you and I had a really fascinating chat with one of our DC court reporters, Katie Bueller. She has been extensively covering the legislative effort to reform DC's criminal code, which is like 120 years old. And it's basically this patchwork of court decisions and like ad hoc. It's it's very kind of jumbled and disorganized. And the efforts to rewrite it get all tied up in both local and federal politics. Really interesting story. uh, And I do hope everybody will stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, we do have some news to get to. And as I understand it, Haley, we've cooked up a little bit of a theme this week. We have. We love our themes. And this week, it is mergers and acquisitions. That's yeah. right. It is. I, I have deemed this M&A day on Pro yeah. Se. Okay. M&A day on Pro Se. I don't want to hear a word from the deals attorneys saying we don't, we don't talk about this stuff enough because we're getting too 
Very interesting stories right off the top this week. Where are we starting? Yeah, let's kick off M&A Day with (laughs) a good old-fashioned airline merger. Yeah. JetBlue has plans to acquire Spirit for $3.8 billion, which would give the combined entity a roughly 10% market share and make it the fifth biggest airline in the U.S. So JetBlue and Spirit obviously, say this is good for competition. It's a new challenger for the current big four airlines, which I believe control like 80% of the market, something like that. Yeah. So they're like, no, this is great. But regulators and the Justice Department say it'll drive up costs for consumers. It's a really interesting ordeal, not just because we all love to get riled up about airfare and air travel in general. Don't get me started. I know. We could really go on a tangent here <laughs> if we don't if we don't stick to uh <laughs> stick to this story. But it's also interesting because the Biden administration has launched a pretty aggressive attack on the deal, coming at it from multiple angles. And that could threaten not just this merger, but future airline acquisitions as well. Commercial air travel is always a really interesting land. I mean, we're, we're, we're joking about how, you know, the, the dry nature of M&A, but like, consu- like, you know, commercial air travel is a fascinating lens through which to examine this part of the law. Cause like you say, it's something that, you know, everybody deals with, uh, depending on the carrier you're using, Air travel can be a profoundly dehumanizing experience these days, but that's a discussion for another yes, day. Yes, it can. <laughs> well, let's. Um, this this merger is has been announced and proposed, but let's start with what you were just speaking about: um, the Biden administration's legal challenge to the merger. What is the government doing to try and stop the deal from going forward, at least in its current form? Right. So the DOJ, along with Massachusetts, New York, and the District of Columbia, all filed a complaint in Massachusetts federal court this week under the Clayton Act. And that's, of course, the law that prohibits anti-competitive mergers. So the Justice Department says that JetBlue and Spirit compete directly on at least 150 routes, serving tens of millions of Americans, and maybe more... Uh, concerning to the government is Spirit has a disruptive business model that has increased competition, and JetBlue has said that it plans to abandon that in the merger. So the government says that means JetBlue will essentially eliminate the cheapest airline in the U.S., which is a big deal for working and middle-class Americans who rely on what they call those ultra-low fares. The agency's main claim here is that these two are competitors in a really special corner of the market, and losing competition between them will lead to higher cheap fares, if you can follow that. No, it is. It's a little attenuated, but, you know, I mean, if you if you fly even somewhat regularly, you know, you know how it goes. Spirit especially is sort of like the baseline for like, okay, maybe the flight's taking off at a somewhat inconvenient time or whatever, but it's at least like... It, in many cases, represents the floor of how cheap a flight can be. And if the idea is, you know, if you're eliminating more players in that market, the floor, it could still be the lowest, but the floor itself could could rise. I mean, you understand where that, exactly. where that concern arises. Now, you also mentioned in addition to the DOJ f- filing a legal challenge, you said that there are also 
civil regulators that are opposing the deal, what what shape does that take? Yeah, the Department of Transportation is threatening to withhold some pretty crucial regulatory approvals for the combined entity, and it says that it fully supports the DOJ's lawsuits. Where we stand today is the DOT is in the middle of investigating a request from the airlines to combine their operating certificates. JetBlue and Spirit have also asked the DOT for an exemption, allowing them to operate under common ownership before the transfer there is complete. But in light of the litigation, the DOT said it would be denying that request, continuing its investigation. Here's a statement from the agency issued earlier this week. The department will continue to separately investigate the transfer as part of its statutory public interest mandate and under its authority to enforce against unfair and deceptive practices and unfair methods of competition. The investigation will remain open for the duration of the proceeding. As we said up top, it is a pretty aggressive approach, both in the the sort of within the courtroom and within the regulatory space to kind of pump the brakes on something like this. And it's also been a little bit of a fraught period for the Biden administration and air travel generally with, you know, with regard to the labor shortage, uh, flights being canceled sort of at a, at a very short uh, on, on very short notice, often no notice. But from the competition aspect, I mean, do we have any um, it's early days for the specific challenges to this transaction, but do we can we glean anything in terms of what it means for competition enforcement in the airline industry? Law 360's own Linda Chim did some really fantastic reporting on exactly that this week. She talked to some antitrust experts who told her, yeah, this is all a pretty big deal. And broadly speaking, if the government is successful in shutting this down, it could add new regulatory hoops for airlines to jump through to get approval for future deals. More specifically, it's signaling that the usual promise airlines have made in uh, mergers of yore to just (laughs) give up routes or airport slots, none of that is enough to get the federal government's blessing anymore. The president of the American Antitrust Institute told Law360 that this shows the government is, quote, unwilling to tolerate future consolidation in the domestic passenger aviation markets. That president, her name is Diana Moss, noted that we've seen 17 years of consolidation, six major mergers during that time, and a really dwindling number of lower-cost carriers. And another thing Moss said was that the Justice Department has thrown out a few novel theories of anti-competitive harm here. One of those theories is how exactly the merger will reduce choice for consumers. The DOJ's theory recognizes this distinct segment of consumers that are cost conscious and suggests that the merger will eliminate that group of consumers' ability to choose a low-cost carrier because JetBlue is just planning to replace Spirit on any overlapping routes. So big takeaway here, Ma said that this signals just a more expansive reading of the consumer welfare standard. And in general, we'll just you know, probably make airlines a little more nervous, a little more leery to try and get deals like this off the ground in the future. Yeah, well, and on that note, I mean, have we heard from JetBlue and Spirit? I mean, they've these these deals are 
quite ornate and take a long time to pull together. And then this, when the when the government really takes the gloves off, like it appears the Biden administration is doing now, it can be quite a jolt. I mean, what are they saying about this? Yeah, they're not pleased, uh, as you can imagine. They really contend that the merger will be good for consumers because it means, in their words, that passengers don't have to choose between a low fare and a good experience. I feel between you and me and all of our <laughs> listeners, I feel like this is a dig at the quality of Spirit <laughs> airline flights. Well, I mean, that's but, sort of, uh, you don't have to be a genius read between those lines, <laughs> but that's not really for us to say Neither at this point. Neither here nor but there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, um, I'm picking up what they're putting down, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So here's a statement from JetBlue's CEO. Customers deserve a competitive airline marketplace, and we will pursue this merger to ensure they get it. Continuing to disrupt the legacy airlines with lower fares and award-winning service that even the DOJ has applauded. We believe the DOJ has got it wrong on the law here and misses the point. Sorry, I clearly struggle to uh, read like PR statements in a normal manner since I'm a journalist. But in any yeah. event, there's a lot going on here. And there's I do want to add that there's a lot that we didn't even have time to dig into today. So I highly recommend everyone should check out Linda's analysis and just stick with us because I'm sure we'll have many updates down the road as this all unfolds. Yeah, maybe we can turn M&A Day into an annual thing or a monthly thing. I don't oh, know. That's probably, that's probably overpromising. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's a fascinating case that we will certainly keep an eye on. Next, I want to continue M&A Day with something that I think uh, many of our listeners will be greatly keyed up for. This is a merger in the big law space or more specifically, a merger that actually fell through. Drama. Ooh, big law Drama. Uh, okay. So <laughs> what we're talking about is uh, the New York law firm Shearman and Sterling called off a rumored merger with the big law stalwart Hogan and Lovells. They called that off last week after there was many months of speculation here. And the big sort of takeaway from this aborted merger is that Shearman Sterling appears to have been left in a little bit of a precarious position, losing some partners, it's going to struggle to attract new partners. And, you know, this, as I am sort of alluding to, is I think kind of fits into, you know, Law 360's version of, of the gossip column or whatever. Um, but I would Love encourage it. everyone to read the coverage from our own Shumei Dong, she has some really well-sourced reporting on the difficulties that Shearman Sterling both has been facing and will continue to face now that this merger fell apart pretty much squarely in the public eye. I'll say it. It's juicy stuff. Let's. <laughs> can you walk me through this merger, though, uh, even though it did not happen? <laughs> the merger that wasn't. Uh, yes. Right. So what you need to know, uh, Shearman and Sterling is a 150-year-old law firm, began in New York. It's now got offices across Asia, Europe, the Middle East. It's about 850 attorneys, very large. It does a full suite of corporate law practices, ironically does a lot of deals work, uh, even though it couldn't close its own deal here. Um, there's, they're still, I, yeah, sorry. I mean, I don't know the, they're still doing good business. Uh, according to a lot of most industry estimates have them at about a billion dollars in revenue during the last year, um, near the end of last year, December, 2022 word got out that they were considering 
this tie up with Hogan Lovells, which is which I is I think like about twenty eight hundred headcount or something. They're a huge firm, and that would have created one of the largest law firms in the world, like top three or four law firms by headcount and revenue, and a couple of different models for this new entity were being discussed. But both firms had kept a pretty tight lid on the specifics of what they were trying to do. But the merger discussions appear to have ended just as quickly as they popped up. Both sides confirmed last week that they were no longer looking for it. Here's what they said in a joint statement. After careful consideration, we have mutually agreed that a combination at this time is not in the best interest of either firm. We have been deeply impressed with each other's business practices and people and wish each other continued success this just is you 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 made a joke before about pr speak that's sort of like hey we're still friends we parted on great terms this like we have deep respect yeah <laughs> for what everybody's doing in the legal space both teams played hard we're just not we're not going through it right now um so that's that's sort of the specifics of the sort of playing footsie with each other to merge and then deciding not to. I mean, as interesting and fun as it is for us at, you know, a legal industry publication to talk about this sort of thing, it's not that big. I mean, it's not that unusual for plans to combine to not work out. But you mentioned that this kind of is leaving Sherman in a bad spot. Why is that? Yeah, well, because it's not just a merger that was that they were kind of messing that they were kind of toying with and then decided not to do it's not happening in a vacuum the issue is that just as these whispers of a merger were growing louder Sherman has been losing some premium talent there was a group of about 20 attorneys that left for Morgan Lewis last month um and a number of partners in influential practices like uh, international arbitration uh and others have also left the firm and according to Shumei Dong's reporting, which I referenced earlier, the combination of like a, a slew of big departures like that and a failed merger, for better or worse, is going to paint the picture that the firm is kind of open for poaching by its competitors. Uh, and that's yeah. sort of a two-way talent problem, right? Because they it's documented that they are losing some people. And then also when you create this, this image of yourself, it's going to be difficult to not only keep your people, but attract new people. That's like sort of the 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 industry read at this point. And those fears are already playing out. Uh, at least one recruiter told Law360 that several partners at Shearman have been in contact with him about exploring positions at other firms. So, and there were talks in, in Shumei's reporting, there, there was mention of like, even though the, the business is quite strong and quite healthy, the firm is quite heavily leveraged in the pensions that it's offering to both current and former partners, quite a lot of money in that. And that's sort of in the ether as well. Um, but it is the, the 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 sort of, like I say, the industry read is that Shearman might have a tough road to hoe here. Precarious, precarious. Yeah, yeah. Is there any other fallout from this not happening? It's a little bit of an imprecise science here to try and trace like things that were happening at the firm anyway and I don't want to like overstate what's happening now with th 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 that their connection to the failed merger or anything like that but one piece of news that did come out like a day after or, or rather like a few days after the merger was called off 
Uh, Shearman was is has basically sped up a planned change to the firm's leadership. The global managing director of the firm, which is like the highest ranking position at the firm, was scheduled to step down at the end of his term at the end of this year. They've actually sped that up and they have basically named a new managing director like they did that just this week. And they have sort of said, well, we think it's we think it's prudent to kind of get our ducks in a row here as we um, kind of assess what's going to happen going forward. But this has kind of been in keeping with uh, our own Anna Sanders did some reporting on law firm mergers, especially in the wake of the pandemic, are on the decline kind of anyway, or at least not. it's not as active of a market as it had been. And this is just a very sort of high-profile case of, a, of two well-respected firms uh, that just uh, couldn't make it work. So we will uh, keep an eye out to see uh, if any other fallout ensues. A years-long push to update the District of Columbia's century-old criminal code landed with a thud this week as the U.S. Senate resoundingly defeated a suite of proposed amendments that would have reset sentencing guidelines and lowered penalties for certain crimes. It marks only the fourth time in history that Congress has overridden a D.C. law, coming amid a heated debate over crime in the nation's capital that has underscored the district's unique hurdles to self-governance. Here to break down the contentious fight over D.C.'s criminal code and what to expect in the wake of this week's vote is Law 360 D.C. Courts reporter Katie Bueller. Welcome to the show, Katie. Hi, thanks for having me. We're so happy to have you on the show, making your pro se debut. And this is a super interesting issue, though it is, you know, a little bit obscure. Um, You know, if you don't live in D.C. or around D.C., you might not be privy to this stuff. But it is, it's, it's extremely important, and I just kind of want to set the scene a little bit to get us started. Why is everyone all bent out of shape about D.C.'s criminal code? Yeah, so D.C.'s current code was originally written in 1901, and it's been updated and changed by various uh, D.C. councils and federal lawmakers since then. But it's inconsistent with how it defines crimes and the sentences they get. For example, under the current criminal code, someone who is charged with threatening to damage someone's property faces up to 20 years in prison, but a defendant who actually damages someone's property only faces up to 10. Um, So other crimes like simple assault were never officially defined, and it's been left up to the D.C. Court of Appeals, which is the highest court, to to set those elements and, and define what's involved. So D.C. started working on this revision in 2006, but it really geared up its efforts in 2016 when it established a criminal code revision commission. And those are the people who took a look at other states' criminal codes, the American Law Institute's model penal code, as well as local court data to uh, 
rewrite the entire code, basically, and set these new sentencing guidelines. And so what sorts of changes exactly are people pushing for, other than the obvious, which is um, a threat should perhaps lead to (laughs) a lesser sentence than actually committing the crime? The biggest goal for this that I've been told was to make crimes and their punishments proportional, just like that example. Um, So in some cases, misdemeanors were upgraded to felonies, and for other crimes, new levels or new degrees of the crime were created. Uh, The revised code also eliminated most minimum mandatory sentences that are currently available to prosecutors, but it kept one for first-degree murder. Along with that, it established a right to a jury trial for all misdemeanor defendants who face any length of prison time, and it also expanded eligibility for the district's early release program to defendants of any age who serve a certain length of time and and meet other criteria. And through a quirk in our glorious democracy, you know, D.C. is not a state and it is sort of subject to the oversight of federal lawmakers. And a lot of these changes, um, they they, they were trying to push them through. And as you covered extensively for us at Law 360, the entire package was basically dead on arrival in the Senate this week, even before the official vote was cast. Can you talk us through just kind of the the procedural wrangling there and where it kind of kind of got off the rails? Yeah, so to do that, we'll have to go back a little bit to when it was still in D.C. Council's hands. Yeah. Um, the D.C. Council unanimously passed this revised code late last year, but the D.C. mayor ended up vetoing it um, over concerns about certain lower penalties for, for violent crimes. Nevertheless, D.C. Council just kept pushing forward with it and overrode her veto. And that's when it ended up on Congress's doorstep. Federal lawmakers really glommed on to the mayor's criticisms of the sentencing guidelines. Um, and and that's why there was such a, an outcry over it. Um, usually, D.C. laws go through a review period in Congress with little to no objection, and they just go into effect. But congressmen, Congress members are allowed to file these joint resolutions of disapproval, which seek to stop the laws that they disapprove of from going into effect. I think once D.C. Council realized where the vote was going after the House passed it, in a bipartisan vote, they decided to withdraw the bill from congressional consideration and say, and they said, we're going to take a step back and revisit the code and try to work out some of the the issues. The Senate, however, basically said, council doesn't have the authority to stop us from considering the law. So they went on with the vote as scheduled. The, the Senate voted 81 to 14, so an overwhelmingly bipartisan vote, to pass a joint resolution disapproving of the revised code, uh, which, if it were still in play, would prevent the law from going into effect. Okay, so all of this kind of 
gets us to this broader topic of DC's laws and policies, which are very confusing to uh, me in California, <laughs> and and how Congress exerts so much control over that. Can you just give us a primer? I mean, you kind of already got into it, but just a little more of a primer on on how all of that works and how this revision fits in. DC operates under a Home Rule Act, which allows council and the mayor to pass local legislation, but it gives Congress ultimate authority to decide what will go into law. Usually, Congress won't raise any objections and the laws will just go into effect after a certain amount of time. But if federal lawmakers do have objections, they can file these joint resolutions of disapproval that aim to stop the law from going into effect. They can also, though, use riders on the budget if something went into effect and they don't approve of it. For instance, in 2014, D.C. voters voted to legalize small amounts of marijuana for personal use and possession, but Congress has written into all the budgets since then riders saying that D.C. cannot use federal funds to regulate that industry. So D.C., like many things, is in a weird limbo where marijuana for personal use is legal, but D.C. cannot regulate or tax that industry at all, unlike other states. Yeah, it's it's I lived in the D.C. area for like three years before I moved to New York, and it's always fascinating to watch you know, whenever controversies like these bubble up, this is a this is this is not just a minor controversy. I mean, this is a serious effort to rewrite the criminal code. But the city itself and the city's policies can turn into a political football because it's a relatively small city, but it's obviously very important. It's the capital city. And it allows all these kind of like shadow debates to pop up over. Like I know in this iteration with the criminal code, a big talking point among lawmakers on both sides was like, honing in specifically on the point of carjacking like that was something that like really rose to the surface here what was that all about that was one of the issues the mayor and even the police chief raised carjackings are on the rise in dc and lawmakers pointed out that an attempted one even happened while they were voting on this bill yeah wow uh the the biggest issue with carjackings is under the current code, they are charged like armed robberies would be charged, and they face uh, 7 to 21 years in prison if it's unarmed and more if it's armed. But the new code establishes three levels of carjacking, mm -hmm. with the lowest being, you know, say someone carjacks you and, and they punch you during the carjacking, yeah. where you only receive minor injuries. That's only punishable by up to four years now. Um, if it's armed, it's up to eight years. So there's a drastic change in how the most common form of carjacking, which is that lower form, is be is would have been punished. Yeah, see, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, and then that sort of it's many politicians will then you can easily make a speech that says, oh, we're like going soft on carjackings, which are rampant in the district or whatever. That's what they would say. And then, you know, I mean, there have been other things, too. I mean, I, in, in past iterations of debates like this, you know, whether it's gun violence or drugs in the city, I just I, I, I think it's fascinating to 
watch the way, you know, a city's complicated policies and politics become sort of, you know, a pawn in a larger, like, federal oversight kind of thing. So I, I, I just find it interesting. Um, so where we're sitting now, as you've said to us, the revised code was defeated in the Senate, even on a largely symbolic vote. They, the, 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 the council was going to revisit this anyway. You wrote, you've written extensively on this. Where does this leave us? I mean, is the whole thing dead in the water? Are they going to try and come back with like a less controversial bill, uh, something else? Uh, what should we be on the lookout for now that this is sort of formally defeated in the federal legislature? The revised code isn't officially dead. Okay. Uh, the, the Home Rule Act, while it allows Congress to prevent these laws from going into effect, it doesn't have any language preventing D.C. Council from turning around tomorrow and, and passing the revised code again. So Council has said that they are going to take a step back, revisit the code, and try to pass it either in parts or in whole. But sources have told me that they are going to face either the same or worse resistance from Congress if they try to do it within this 2024 election cycle. Um, like other issues in D.C., federal lawmakers use this as a springboard to discuss how they're tough on crime and get ready for re-election bids, basically. So the only real solution many, many uh advocates say is D.C. statehood, which, again, would have to pass Congress. And there's a lot of resistance for that as well. Just one other thing, since this is the fourth time that a law has been overturned by Congress, um, the only other time that D.C. Council came back and repassed a similar law to one that was overturned, it took a decade to pass the new law which didn't receive any resistance in Congress on the second time around. Yeah, so it could be a long road to hoe is what you're saying. Yes, yes, very long. Yes. Uh, fascinating developments in the nation's capital. Katie, you've done incredible reporting on it for Law 360, and I'm so happy you were able to join Pro Se to uh, talk us through it. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Haley, uh, we're dipping into a lot of buckets here. Celebrities, dog theft law, um, Tinseltown, where you reside. This is a big one. Hollywood, baby. Yes. Alex, today I'm, and uh, every day, I suppose, I'm coming, <laughs> yes. coming to you live from approximately five to ten minutes from the Hollywood Hills, give or take. Um, where I'm wildly speculating that the community is still reeling from the dog napping of Lady Gaga's French Bulldogs back in 2021. I mean, I know I am. Uh, and, and <laughs> you know, I I do remember hearing this story. And then there's been an update, which we'll talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. And it really kind of opened my eyes to how, like, messed up uh, this whole incident was. I mean, obviously, stealing someone's dog is, like, not a cool thing to do. I'm against it. But it's taken some wild Let the turns. Record show. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 not for that. 
<laughs> just as a as a as a as a policy matter. <laughs> but there have been um, even by that already kind of bizarre standard, some real interesting turns here. What are we talking about? Yeah. So the dogs, their names are Koji and Gustav. I looked mm-hmm. this up. Yeah. They thank were. You. They have long ago been returned safe and sound, and several individuals were also arrested. Well, one of those individuals who pled no contest to a charge of receiving stolen property is now suing Lady Gaga, claiming that she should have been paid a $500,000 reward for returning the dogs. (laughs) Uh, This happens famously in the Mel Gibson movie Ransom. Uh, which involves the kidnapping of a human child, and then Gary Sinise is like the right. Wow, Gary Sinise is like the crooked cop who was in on it. He was concealing his identity, but he tries to collect the reward, and you know all this stuff happens. This is wild though, because this woman isn't even pretending to have not been a part of the plot, but her exact sort of participation is kind of in question. The point is, she was you know charged in the plot and is now saying she deserves to be paid for, uh, I don't know, having a come to Jesus moment or something. What do we need to understand here? To fully grasp this suit, we need to get into the particulars of that incident. As you may recall, I'm sure, you know, this incident, it's just always on our minds. Um, <laughs> this was, this was actually like a very violent dog napping situation. Very scary stuff. It was around 9:40 PM Two men jumped out of a car and demanded that Lady Gaga's dog walker hand over the animals. The dog walker refused, struggled with the men, and was actually shot in the chest before the dog nappers left with the dogs. And I do want to say right away, the dog walker survived. So, yeah, thank God. We were talking about this in the production meeting yesterday. I just remember when this first... This story first bubbled up. I guess I didn't like read it that closely. It's kind of like one of those headline type of stories. You know, Lady Gaga's dogs kidnapped. Right. And I knew that they assaulted the guy. I assume they beat him up or something. I That was news to me that he was shot in the chest. And as you say, he's he, uh, survived. But yeah, a lot more violent than I initially realized. Yeah, intense stuff. So later, this woman who filed the suit, her name is Jennifer McBride. She walked into an L.A. police station with the dogs, saying that she just came upon them. They were tied to a pole in the days following the robbery. But the cops later discovered that she actually had a relationship with the father of one of the two men accused of stealing them. And they said she was clearly involved in the whole thing because there's video of her essentially waiting for the dogs to be dropped off. She's just like pacing back and forth. And then they get dropped off, tied to this pole, and she just immediately walks over and gets them. So she was eventually convicted and sentenced to two years of probation. And that kind of brings us up to speed. She she was the bag man, clearly. I mean, you know, <laughs> yes. if you, you don't have to have seen too many heist movies to understand how that works. That's crazy, though. I mean, what is she saying here? I mean, is she's if she was found to be an accessory to the crime, but she's saying... The money was promised, and I literally walked into the police station with the dogs, and the covenant should be honored. I mean, what are the claims? She, I should say right off the bat, her lawsuit doesn't make any mention of her conviction or the fact that she was involved, like none of that, which, I mean, hey, probably a 
I don't know if we can That's call any of this. That's what complaints are for, you know? You, yeah, you, you're, a good you're, legal you're, you're strategy, telling, but... <laughs> yeah, you're telling your version of the story. It'll come out if it gain, if it, if yeah. it gets legs. We already don't, know the particulars, but yes. Don't mention it if you don't have to. But so she's saying that Lady Gaga promised a $500,000 reward with no questions asked. And so she should get that money. No questions asked. Specifically, she's alleging that Lady Gaga never intended to honor that offer. McBride said she was questioned about her role in the whole thing, and she shouldn't have been. And as a result, she suffered pain and suffering, mental anguish, and loss of enjoyment of life because she missed out on that reward. Um, It's worth mentioning as well that she is not seeking $500,000. She is seeking $1.5 million in damages. I am curious. I mean, we work it's a it's a wild story, and it's we're talking about it here at the end of the show, somewhat glibly. I mean, it is kind of an interesting thing. I'll I'll be curious to see if it gets any legs, if there's like some sort of implied covenant here, like if some common law contract should be invoked. Um, you know, I mean, she literally walked into the police station with the animals in question. Um, has there been any kind of early response to this? I mean, it's 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 early. It's you know, it was just like a couple of weeks ago. But any any early takeaways? Yeah, there has been some, and it's really interesting. As you said, this is just a really unique legal situation. Um, the LA Times actually talked to an LA County Deputy District Attorney who said that if Lady Gaga suffers any financial loss stemming from the crime. And that could include paying a reward, then McBride and the other dependents might end up having to pay for that because prosecutors could seek restitution on behalf of Lady Gaga. Uh, <laughs> so sh- this prosecutor is sort of saying, like, I even if Lady Gaga is like, okay, sure, like have the reward even though you were involved, ultimately, then the reward is going to have to be paid back to Lady You're robbing Peter to pay Paul here a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's very uh, mind-bending stuff here. But, uh, hey, I'm I'm keeping my eyes on the hills. I'm glad the dogs are safe and sound, and I'm eager to see how this all plays out. I do wonder if it kind of put a jolt through the celebrity dog-walking community. Cause I mean, oh man, yeah, you know what I mean. Like, and I'm, I'm kind of being serious about that. I mean, it's not like, as we've said, I mean, it's violent crime, and you know, clearly they were targeted here. Little Koji and little Gustav, you know, whimpering, fearing for their lives, and you know, the, the, to say nothing of the human beings that have to get them from here to there without incident. Um, yeah, well, I don't know if this is a world that you traffic in, or if you like know anything about this the as a resident. Thing- The only thing I will say is the other threat to the dog walking community at large in my area was the mountain lion that lived in Griffith Park for 12 years. P-22? Do I have that right? Yes, P-22. It may have been been that he was 12 years old and he lived in Griffith Park for 10 years. I might have that wrong. But in any event, P-22, near the end of his life, just started eating dogs. (laughs) Oh, no. Just... People would be walking their dog on a leash and P-22 would be like, yo, that looks tasty. And See? just just chomp that chihuahua straight down. See, this is a classic example, though. I mean, when, when P-22 died, the media 
was just so eager to throw roses at this guy's feet, the beloved <laughs> mountain lion that we all know. Meanwhile, scant mention, this is true service journalism by you, scant mention of the, of the, of, you know, the various phytos and spots that he was scooping up on the reg. So I mean, anyway, he only got a few in, well, in defense well, yeah. of the national media. I will say that our local outlets were doing fantastic. OK, well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, well, they're doing great work. And so are we clearly. Ripped to P22. Yeah. And I so, miss the guy. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a fine spot to end today's show. Haley, it was it was a trip, I think. It was. We uh, What a successful uh, M&A day on Pro Se. Yes. Uh, and here's to many more. We do have some people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Katie Bueller, and our contributing reporters, Linda Chim, Shumei Dong, and Anna Sanders. Music from the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform so that other people can find us. If you want to read more about any of the stories we talked about today, just head to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>